The All Souls Forum is a production of the Unitarian Universalist Church at 4501 Walnut Street in Kansas City, Missouri. Here is this week's production of the All Souls Forum. Hello everyone and all of you here and online. And welcome to the All Souls Community Forum coming to you from All Souls Unitarian Universalist Church in Kansas City. I'm Joe Robertson, a member of this church and a member of this forum, the forum committee, which is supporting this forum that for nearly 80 years has been leading important and compelling conversations on issues of the day. Today we are joined by Mike Marcus, the Community Engagement Coordinator at Reconciliation Services in Thelma's Kitchen, which has been an ever-growing anchor of social service and action, reaching out from the area of 31st and Troost since its origins as a simple kitchen and ministry 35 years ago. In that time, Reconciliation Services has taught our community about healing and trust and embracing poverty and trauma with dignity. Thank you for coming, Mike, and welcome to the forum. Good morning, everyone. Um, uh, I'm Mike Marcus. I'm the Community Engagement Coordinator for Thelma's Kitchen Reconciliation Service, as much as uh, was described. But uh, the unique part of my position is that it's my role to help build relationships with community organizations. Uh, and perhaps most importantly, uh, in how I describe my work, is I help close the psychological distance that exists between our partners uh, and our clients that we serve at uh, 31st and Troost. To understand a little bit of why that this work is so important and developing these relationships is so important, I kind of want to take a step back and start with the history of the area that we serve. So we are on the historic dividing line of Troost Avenue in Kansas City. And I'm sure a lot of you know uh, bits and pieces of the history um, of what has happened there and the, the decisions that were made generations ago that still have lasting impacts into today. Um, but the history of Troost begins uh, back when it was wooded area and it was home to the Osage people in, Kans uh, in what we now know as Kansas City. Uh, actually, they would use what we consider Cruz Avenue right now as a passage to uh, take their canoes down to the river. And uh, not knowing what to expect as the settlers began moving westward, they sold their land for pennies on the dollar um, to, to the settlers coming to the area. Now, in the 1800s, the area of Troost that we currently serve, uh, our building actually exists in what once was the Porter Plantation, which housed uh, a number of slaves on the Missouri side. Following that civil war, the land became prime real estate. It had been cultivated so well that it was, it was great real estate. It was great farmland. It was a great place to be, uh, which led to an economic boom and an economic bust in the 1890s. Uh, during this time, as uh, people were making decisions about how do, we, how do we go from here, where do we grow from here, uh, immigrant families began making their way to Kansas City and helped develop that area uh, to be full of business, to be full of homes, to be full uh, an economic driver for the city and for the state. Uh, following desegregation, uh, the process of white flight and redlining on Hoost Avenue led to historic discrimination and disinvestment in the community east of Troost. Troost became the social, racial, and economic dividing line of our city um, through the process of redlining and white flight as the suburbs began to develop. Now, uh, 
going to fast forward a little bit to talk more specifically about what our work is. And so our work begins with a gentleman named David Altschul in the 1980s. He was he was an insurance salesman from Johnson County uh, who, through some trials in his own life, became inspired uh, by scripture to love and to serve the poor. And so in 1985, he began just of his own volition uh, going to an apartment complex, the LaSalle apartment complex uh, at the corner of Troost and Linwood, uh, which uh, was a it was a picture of some of the historic disinvestment, the historic trauma that exists exists in our community still today. And he just began providing food and assistance wherever he could. And he met uh, Thelma Beaver, who was a uh, an African-American woman who her upbringing was very different uh, in Texarkana. And uh, she grew up and lived a life of poverty and trauma and addiction. Um, but the two of them fell in love. And in 1986, much to the opposition of their family, their friends, their church body, uh, that they chose to marry. And they bought what was a uh, defunct building at the corner of 31st and Troost, where we still operate today. They, In their first month of marriage, they had 20 people living with them. Uh, they just would cook and clean for each other and try to give people an opportunity meeting needs wherever they could find it. Uh, and so as time went on, they really became invested in their prayer and spiritual life. And eventually, um, David Altschul became an Eastern Orthodox priest. Um, they Eastern Orthodox priests, yes, and they uh, they started a church out of that building. One of the floors on the building, they had um, a community living space. They had uh, the kitchen on the main floor where they were doing ministry, uh, and they had uh, they had a church on one of the floors of the building. And so, reconciliation services started as reconciliation ministries um, at this old building at Thirty First and Troost. Uh, they served hot meals and just shared compassion and assistance with anyone in need that would come their way. 31st and Troost. The work that they started in the 1980s continues into the work that we are still doing today. In 2005, Reconciliation Ministries became Reconciliation Services, a nonprofit entity uh, that was rooted in the profession that all people are living icons of Christ and worthy of veneration from that Eastern Orthodox tradition. And just to give a little sample of the kind of work that we are doing today, in 2002, we just, you know, fresh off the presses, um, the, the, some of the services that we provide, we've provided 600 hours of individual therapy, 300 hours of group therapy, 2,500 hours of case management, 6,000 lunches provided at no cost to folks coming to receive services and at other local nonprofit agencies. We have 71 foster grandparents in 20 different sites, three of which are new. We're continuing to rebuild that program following COVID. Uh, we had 160 people have access to the uh, to medicine cabinet assistance, getting medication that they need. We had 255 clients, so that's 255 individuals and or families, though um, so that number is much higher, uh, received $1.2 million in rent and utilities assistance, uh, 745 clients with uh, $400,000 of direct utility assistance, and 1,400 people who have had an ID or birth certificate uh, that they have received through case management at Reconciliation Services. And this is great. Like Those numbers are fantastic. But I want to share specifically why this work 
is important. And I want to start with uh, the story of one of our clients uh, who I'll call Jane. Jane was a woman who has been chronically homeless for the last five years. Uh, she was a victim of violence. Uh, her health was declining very rapidly. And uh, when she came to reconciliation services, she found herself in a really bad place. And she connected with our team, working hard to try to change the trajectory of her life. She was trying to turn things around for her and her family. And our team, as she began to meet with us, she began. Uh, we made connections with University Health and Casey Public Medicine Cabinet to try to help turn the physical health piece around. Through that work, through the connections that we had, we were able to uh, assist her in getting housed and get her on uh, disability. So she was living on a strict income, and so we helped provide the tools that she needed to be able to budget and work around that. And she has been working with our team for a year and a half. We eventually got her housed, and in the last three months, she has had a place to live that she can call her own for the first time uh, in years. And through connections at Flourish Furnish, Flourish Furnishings, my apologies, she, we were able to help furnish her apartment at very little to no cost for her. Um, and that's just one of the stories of the, all those statistics that I just shared. That's just one example of the kind of work that we do. Reconciliation services. Reconciliation is in the name. Reconciliation is the restoration of friendly relationships by definition. And that's what we are about. We are about reconciliation with people, reconciliation with fully abundant lives, with family and friends that have been separated by injustice and reconciliation of communities. The work that we do is highly relational. And our goal as an organization is part of our goal is to foster community healing through the ripple effects that of building trust, lowering stigma around issues of poverty and trauma in our community, embracing dignity, community, and advocacy. And how we do this work is by reducing the psychological distance that separates uh, people from different stratas of our society. The stats that I shared, those are awesome numbers. And it's great to see uh, how the program has continued to grow. Even in the midst of a big transition, we are currently temporarily housed while some renovations are going on our building. And that has changed the way that we've had to do some things, but we are still continuing to generate more and more impact. And this is awesome. but what matters are those individual stories that really show how reconciliation happens in our community. Lives are changed not quickly and efficiently. As you just heard in the story of Jane, she's been receiving case management for the last year and a half. That is a process, but it is changed by reducing the psychological distance and by engaging with and empathizing with those who have different stories and different testimonies than our own. One example that I think of when I think of what it means to close the psychological distance, and this is one that we can all relate with over the last few years, is uh, the issue of COVID-19. COVID-19 started as what seemed like a really far if issue. We were hearing, you know, little stories about this virus, but it was all very separate from where we were. And then we started to hear about cases in Seattle and then in New York. And then closer and closer to the point that we are all aware of someone whose life has been drastically altered by the COVID-19 pandemic. It starts off 
like a far off issue. But the more you learn and the more it begins to impact you and your daily life, um, the smaller and smaller the psychological distance between you and, in this case, COVID becomes. The more real the issue gets for us personally. Redlining, historic disinvestment and discrimination in our communities may seem distant us personally, depending on our life circumstances, but the more we learn and the, uh, the more it begins to affect us and pierce our own souls as well. One way that we at Reconciliation Services have begun to close this psychological distance in our community is through Thelma's Kitchen. Now, Thelma's Kitchen started as a donate what you can cafe. And so anyone could come in and for pocket change, or if you had no money at all, you could bust tables for a few minutes uh, and you would get a delicious home cooked meal with the dignity of choice. It was a restaurant style. And so it's not like um, a soup kitchen where you're handed whatever the option for the day is. Uh, we had tenderloin Tuesdays where the line would form around the block to come get a delicious tenderloin. Uh, but we instated this pay what you can model. So there was both this dignity of being able to have some autonomy about what you were doing. And there was this, this dignity of choice that, you know, you're not just force fed certain options. You, you can pick, do I want the tenderloin? Do I want the chicken, bacon, avocado? You know, what do I want today? And really have that restaurant, um, and a feel to it. And so we had this unique community setting where we had unhoused individuals eating alongside business leaders in the community um, at our community tables. And so we really had a space where that psychological distance and that physical distance that sometimes happens was greatly reduced. And our major impact was that we had what we called community stewards. And community stewards were our social workers, our case managers, our therapists who would be present in the kitchen when it was open. And they would meet and eat and hear the stories of those that were coming for a meal and connect them with resources that might help lead to a more full and abundant life. And again, you see that relational piece. This isn't just a, a transactional thing. This isn't like walking into the grocery store and buying something. This is this is a process that takes time. It takes getting to know someone and getting to know someone's story to really have meaningful uh, and lasting impact. Through the connections with individuals, we can begin to make larger connections. In the story of Jane, I made mention of other connections that we had with KC Public Medicine Cabinet and University Health and flourish furnishings. And because of these relationships between organizations, we are able to have drastic impact for individuals as well. The cool thing about this idea, closing the psychological distance, is that it isn't about a one-to-one -one relationship. It's not about one case manager and one individual coming to receive services. It's about expanding uh, social networks in a healthy way so that people have more access to resources and the playing field can be leveled for our neighbors in need. Closing the psychological distance sometimes looks like tapping into our own connections, like the story of Reggie, another one of our clients. Reggie was a, uh, he was a gentleman who came out of the prison system and got connected through a friend with reconciliation services, looking for a place to be housed. And so we uh, went to try to help him with rental assistance. And uh, because of his past convictions, he had had a hard time finding a landlord that would accept him. And so we worked with him. We eventually found a landlord that would work with him under a couple of circumstances. 
uh, you know, he had to have a job. There were certain, uh, he had to meet with uh, our team a certain amount of times. Uh, and as long as he would do that, the landlord would house him, um, even though it was, he was nervous to do so. So he got connected with us. We helped find a way for him to be housed and he would come to reconciliation services every other day uh, just to check in to uh, meet uh, so we could walk with him, learn more about his story and help him meet his needs. And uh, one day he got into a major car accident and he was hospitalized uh, for about three or four months. He had to relearn how to walk. um, And all the while, we initially didn't know what happened to him because no one had no one knew that we were the ones helping him uh, stay housed. And at the same time, with uh, the COVID pandemic going on, his his uh, job had been affected by COVID, and so he we were helping him apply apply for housing assistance uh, through a safer grant. Uh, and so again, application after application was being rejected. Uh, and once he was well enough to reach out, he called our case management team from the hospital and kept working with them while he was in a hospital bed to try to continue to be approved. And finally, uh, after the sixth application, this is a lengthy application process, uh, he was approved. And so his housing uh, was covered while he was in the hospital. And again, he he was relearning how to work, walk. His job worked with him so that he could keep his job even when he got out. Um, and he was able to receive short-term disability because of the advocacy that happened because we had had that relationship with him. When that psychological distance is small, we are more prone to be advocates for people who have experienced uh, a variety of circumstances when there's not that stigma that exists. For him, uh, it was too early for uh, FMLA uh, and his job. And so we really had to work with his uh, employment to make sure that he could maintain uh, his position. And we worked with his supervisor at his job and his team. And really, Reggie was incredibly tenacious. He wanted this. He wanted to see his life change, but he didn't have the resources in the moment to be able to do this and needed the support of someone else. Without that work, he would have been out of a house and he would have been out of a job. And it's a six to seven month process to get approved for that grant. And so he continued to work with us again and again. And after this life-changing dramatic event, he had less than 10 days to edit his case on Safer to get that grant. Open communication with us and with him was key. Trust in each other, trust in that relationship that had been built through that case management process was key. And case management really was able to help him change his life. And I'm happy to say that today he is back at work. He's still going through PT to rehabilitate after that accident, Um, but he is doing well and his life has been altered by all these circumstances, both in positive ways and in negative ways. Um, But because of that relationship, because of that connection, uh, Reggie knows he has a resource because we have closed that psychological difference or distance between us. By not treating Reggie as another case, but instead learning more about his story and using our connections to get him a chance that he would not would have otherwise had his connections to his community, to his friends, to his coworkers has become tighter because the psychological distance has shrank. 
Reggie and Jane are real people. They are real neighbors of ours as Kansasidians. They were people who were impacted by systems that give some people privilege and deny access of choice to others. Reconciliation is about building trust. And so we have a goal to help develop trauma-informed people and lower, lower the stigma of inequities of race and gender, class, status, religious heritage, sexual orientation, affiliation, and personal history. This is what it means to lower the psychological distance, breaking the barriers of stigma with empathy and grace, entering into uncomfortable spaces where we are often vulnerable ourselves for the sake of building relationships and healing what has historically been broken. And this is not something that we do for others, but rather something that we do with each other. This is, a again, relational thing. It's not something that we can do. It's not a service that we can provide. Reconciliation services is in the name, but and we help, do provide services, that is true, but we can't provide those without knowing someone's story. And the more stories you start to get to know, the more that psychological distance begins to close. So I want to share the statistics that I shared closer to the beginning, but I want to reframe them a little bit. 600 hours individual therapy and hearing the struggles of our neighbors who have historically felt unheard. 300 hours of group therapy where healing was reciprocated, joy was celebrated, sorrow was recognized and supported. 2,500 hours of case management, doing the relational and logistical work because we can be efficient with things, but not with people. 6,000 free lunches, making that work more possible when stomachs aren't growling through a case management session. 71 foster grandparents sharing wisdom while also resisting the loneliness that often plagues senior adults in our community, particularly those of low income. 160 people who had access to life-giving medication that they otherwise would not have been able to afford. 255 families not on the streets because they needed a little extra help to get by this month. 745 families with light and power because someone would advocate for them. And 1,400 people with dignity and access provided by having IDs and birth certificates that otherwise limit their ability to participate in parts of our society. When we talk about closing the psychological distance, it's easy to address the statistics that I started with. It's easy to say, these are, this is the amount of impact that we have had by the numbers, and that's great. But what's really important is that we are having individual and community impact through relationship building, through lowering stigma, through changing the way that we look at social issues. Reconciliation for us is about bringing together what has been broken. The reason the name Reconciliation Services is so important is because it exists on truce, which has historically been the dividing line of our city through historical practices such as redlining. 
And so I have a unique privilege in that I get to be in this space where I'm having conversations with donors and businesses who are supporting our work and also get to hear these stories of clients whose lives have been changed. And I see it as my role to close the distance that exists between those two parties. This is how we make lasting community change is by closing that distance. Part of my role is that we have a lot of volunteers who come through our organization. And this, this has continued to be one of the most fascinating things since I've started in this role. Um, I host a lot of orientations for these groups and I have a whole presentation where I go through the history of redlining. I go through the, uh, the reason that we exist, the community that we serve. Um, and I share uh, a racial dot map, uh, of Kansas city. It is a, from the 2020 census and it has dots organized by color of people, how people self-identify by race. There's no streets on this map, but you can see a line that cuts straight through the city along Troost Avenue because of the historic practices that still have lasting impact 90 some odd years later. And so as I share the, I, as I share these pieces of information and I begin to have conversations about how people interpret this data, because it's really easy to look at something that's happened in the past, like redlining and say, oh yeah, but that's in the past. That's, that was an issue that existed before my time. So we're moving on from that, right? And then you show the map from 2020 and you see that this is still incredibly present. Not only that, but the generational trauma and the generational poverty that exists when money was being taken from one community and put into another, that is ever present. We can see that in the way our schools function. We can see that in the way that um, development happens in our city. And so as I'm sharing this information with these groups, a lot of times via Zoom, you know, I'll ask them, so raise your hand if you've lived in Kansas City for more than five years, 10 years, your whole life. And then I'll say, now put your hand down if you have never heard the term red light or knew this history that we talked about today. And on a good day, maybe 30% of the hands are still up. People are flabbergasted that this is something that is still happening in our community and that this impact is so great. And that's part of the reason why moments like this, forums like this are so important because having that educational piece, being aware of those uh, pieces of our history, that is the first step. That education piece, that awareness piece is the first step in closing the psychological distance. We can't acknowledge a problem exists if we don't know that it exists. So as I sit with these groups and have these conversations, and then they get to come and volunteer, it's amazing to me to, to get to see some of the impact that happens as they interact with our staff. I'm so excited to get back to the kitchen so we can have volunteers interacting with our clients more directly in this midst of our temporary transition. And we start with education. We start with what are the pieces of what are the pieces of our community that need healing? Where can we invite reconciliation into this space? And so we cannot be 
everything to everyone at any given time. And that's part of why those networks are important. You know, we were able to help connect someone with housing that they didn't have previously. But we needed uh, we needed University Health and Casey Public Medicine Cabinet to help them get their physical health in a space that they could have change. We need to flourish furnishings come in because we don't know the first thing about where to get furniture besides them. And so building those relationships between agencies and organizations is another way that we do it because then that story of Jane, that story of Reggie, that begins to impact those organizations as well. And those organizations are made out of people who get to share those stories. And the more and more those stories get shared in the community, the more and more we are able to see generational change, stigma change in our community. And so we start with education. And whatever issue is incredibly important to you, I imagine that you're pretty well informed on. And so maybe it's not this particular issue. Maybe there's, there's a different piece that's really important to you. Start there. And one of those group orientations that I shared previously, I had a, a gentleman stick around after the call and they sent me a chat like, hey, can you hang out for a couple minutes after the call? So that's never happened before, but okay, yeah, I'll do that. And he said he was new. He was a transplant from uh, rural Missouri. Um, uh, he had moved to Kansas City for work. It was his first time living in the city, and the first time he had ever heard anything about redlining, uh, about the historical processes of disinvestment and discrimination that existed in this in this very specific in this very nuanced way. And he wanted to learn more. And that, to me, is the orientation that will always stick with me because that, that spark of curiosity made him more passionate about this issue. And he is working with us still today. Of his group that came, uh, he came back. He continued to work with us, it's still working today, still inviting people he meets to come volunteer with us because that educational piece gave him an opportunity to engage in a new and deeper way with a social issue that he had previously never heard of and previously had never known. Um, and so we were able to connect him. Uh, if you guys had heard, there was a there was an exhibit at the uh, Johnson County History Museum called Redlined. It was a fantastic exhibit. Actually, I, I looked it up because uh, I went last year and it, yesterday was its last day, but it was an incredibly informative exhibit that really it did not hold punches in the way that some of these processes happened and how they still have lasting impact today. There are resources like voice maps, uh, a GPS driving app that takes you on a driving tour of Kansas City while narrating. And it talks about all kinds of issues from these redlining issues, racial issues, economic issues to the Shawnee Indian mission uh, and beyond. It talks about the, the plaza and, and the history of J.C. Nichols as well. And so having that education, having that passion around issues is the first step. It kind of moves you a little bit closer. It lowers that psychological distance a little bit. But really how that psychological distance changes drastically is through engagement, through vulnerability and in hu uh, humility in engaging with the communities that you have a passion with. Maybe it's food insecurity. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's about animals. Maybe it's about... Um, climate change, whatever issue is passionate to you, the way that we close the psychological distance on those issues is 
by engaging with them directly. And also that usually means we're going to be wrong a few times because we have preconceived notions that when we actually start engaging, we see don't always hold up against reality. And then once you are aware of those issues, once you have engaged with those issues and you have learned more firsthand, that's when we are able to lower stigma in our community because you become an advocate. You become the person in the room that as conversations about a social issue are happening, you have the firsthand connection, the firsthand experience uh, with that issue. And you can be the advocate in the room to support, to inform, and to help lower that stigma in your community, what I call your communities of accountability. This is a community of accountability. It is a body of people gathered together uh, for over their passions, over their belief. This is a community of accountability. And ho hosting these forums is a way that we are able to talk more about these kind of issues, lower the stigma around these kind of issues. The story of Jane and the story of Reggie are just a couple of examples. And, and going back to those statistics to the thousands of people who have been touched by the work we've done, those are just two of those stories. Communities of accountability look like your friend circle. They look like your coworkers. Anywhere that you have a voice, you can be an advocate. You can help close the psychological distance that exists in these spaces. And so when we talk about reconciliation, it came from our history. We are a um, faith-inspired nonprofit. We're not a faith-based nonprofit, but that inspiration is that all people are worthy. All people are, they use that specific language of all people are living icons and worthy of veneration. And what that means to us is that it doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter what your history is. What matters is that you are here and you are a person and Sometimes the world that we live in, it doesn't always provide for everyone. I think we all know this. But what can happen is when we come to the table and we have those difficult conversations and we are willing to be vulnerable, we can see lives altered. We can see impact. We can reduce the way that we stigmatize certain things such as poverty or drug use or whether or not you have a record. Closing the psychological distance. Embracing community. Embracing dignity for all people and becoming an advocate. And this is how we at Reconciliation Services see reducing the psychological distance and reducing stigma of all kinds of things, of race, of poverty, of history. And it starts usually with a question. In my orientations that I host, it usually starts, so what do we do now? And that question opens all kinds of doors. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Mike. We, we have been listening to uh, Mike Marcus, the Community Engagement Coordinator at Reconciliation Services in Thelma's Kitchen in Kansas City. 
We're going to uh, get to a question and answer period. And I'm also saying next Sunday, Ann Messel and Judy Morgan from the Jackson County Children's Services Fund will be discussing the road to hope for Jackson County children. Let's move on to our questions here. Could you talk a little bit about what case management is in general and specifically how it works with your organization? So case management, we have uh, we have a large team of um, large being a little relative. We've got about 30 folks on staff uh, and a good chunk of those uh, staff are case managers. And what case management looks like is when someone comes to receive services, it's not just here, fill out this paperwork. It is, okay, so in order to, say, get your ID, um, we have to fill out this paperwork, but what is what is the root cause? What is, um, what is the need that you have that has brought you here today? And really having that conversation to start off, um, I think one of the most important things about case management is that relational piece that I was talking about in the presentation is um, these stories of... Jane and Reggie, they don't happen in a very formalized process where um, it's, let's get as many people IDs as possible. We want to do that. But we also want to make sure if you don't have your ID, what are what are some other things that you might need access to? Um, and so our case managers work closely with individuals who are coming to receive services uh, to make sure that they have what they need, have what they came for also address other things, other iniquities that might exist. Um, and so uh, in the story of Jane, you know, she was looking for housing, ultimately. The reality was, without her story, without the bigger picture of what was going on in her life, we wouldn't have known some of the physical ails that she had. And then we wouldn't have been able to connect her to other organizations. You know, pretty frequently, we'll have um, other case managers show up to our site um, because they have someone that they are working with that has come for medical help or psychological help or economic help that their organization um, doesn't specialize in that or do doesn't necessarily have that piece. And so case managers also help interconnect organizations in the city to make sure people uh, who need equal access to resources can have those that access. And so really it is a person, um, it, they are walking alongside individuals as they go through whatever it is they're going through, whether it's they are looking for uh, access to trauma therapy services or ID restoration or rent and utilities assistance, they are the person that walks alongside them. Um, and they also help navigate some of the complexities of the system that not all of us are aware of. I know the work that our case managers do. I don't know the first thing about how they fill out, um, you know, such and such form and submit it to so, such and such person within this kind of date range or anything like that. So they both have the um, the knowledge of how to uh, how to walk with someone through that process logistically, but also relationally and make those connections that are going to make lasting impact in their lives. Good morning. I'm Evelyn Maddox, and I remember when Reconciliation Services opened at SOAR. I had a vision of two guys, and maybe they didn't each even have their own desk. So congratulations on the growth of what you've Thank done you. for the city. Um, I was aware of when it opened because at the time I was working as a member of the League of Women Voters of Kent City, I was working to uh, inform felons of their rights to vote. I know Reconciliation Services still does that. 
I'm wondering, would a case manager follow a felon from the time he or she walks in the door to their actually having the documents they need, which at this time is a government-issued state photo ID or, or utility bill at this sure. time? So would your case manager follow that felon through the process to be legitimately registered and understand when they're eligible to vote? Do you think your case managers go that way? Yes, um, we, and we do have uh, we do have folks who come. I believe uh, you guys have visited us uh, okay. right before the most recent elections uh, to make sure that we have that information to share with people. Um, ultimately, so, uh, it's it's a two way street, so it's uh, our case managers do uh, interact with people as they're going through that ID restoration process, making sure they're getting all the documentation they need, um, and we will inform them, um, but. It is uh, sometimes when someone gets the ID, you know, then they drop off the radar. And so mm -hmm. to the best of our ability with the clients that we are able to continually interact with, we we do make sure they are informed of their rights. And a lot of them, uh, we have we have an surge right before elections of people coming in to make sure that they have their IDs. That way they are, um, they have the documentation they need to be able to vote. And can you confirm whether you have the funds to pay the expenses associated with acquiring either the state issued ID or the driver's license because there's money involved. Yes. Do you have funds to support that? So uh, we actually just did, that was our, um, we did a very specific push for Giving Tuesday in 2022 um, that was entirely centered around uh, the cost of an ID. Um, it's uh, on the spot. I'm, I, I'm drawing a blank. If it's, uh, I want to say it's about $25 to. Yeah, uh, I think 15, the last time I looked, but and it has to be renewed. You're right. Yes. And so uh, a lot of times that that is a that is a major barrier for some folks. And so uh, we will uh, we work with uh, agencies to make sure that those fees can be covered. Uh, and so and donor support helps that as well. Um, so when someone applies for an ID through us and is working with a case manager, we make sure that finances are not a barrier between someone getting an ID um, or not. So it's been about 35 years since I was a paid social worker, so I'm really out of touch. So, And I was on the Kansas side, so I had not heard of your organization. Oh, bad news. So I'd like to hear a little bit more about the volunteer roles and totally separate than that is, what is sort of your average, if there is one, sort of length of connection and follow-up with people so they don't get that one thing and then everything falls apart and then, you know, there's... Anyway. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm going to answer your question in a little bit of a roundabout way. I promise I'm going to get it. Um, so first of all, Reconciliation Services uh, has a variety of different programs. So we have the Thelma's Kitchen program, which started as the Donate What You Can Cafe. Um, during this transitional period for us, uh, it's operating as a, a box lunch uh, ser like service, like companies buy box lunches from us. And uh, all the proceeds from those lunches uh, get poured back into our other program, one of our other programs, uh, which is Reveal. Now that's case management, that's therapy, that's where our social workers are. Um, and so a lot of the services I talked about today um, are part of that Reveal program. And then we also have the Foster Grandparents program, uh, which is uh, low-income senior adults that uh, mentor kids who are at social or economic disadvantage in the city. Um, and there's a lot of overlap. So, some, so like I said, a lot of people um, when the cafe was open, they got connected through something by for a good, affordable lunch 
to our case management program. And that's really how the relationship started. Or sometimes there's a senior adult who's going through case management that, hey, there's a stipend for foster grandparents that we were able to connect you with. And so it's very situational because sometimes there is just that, there is that immediate need. Um, we I've heard stories of uh, folks who have left the prison system, had given their documentation to a friend, that friend's house burned down. And so now they don't have documentation. They're like, hey, I'm like, I'm good. I'm 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 able to get housed. Like I'm not worried about that. You need an ID so I can get a job. And so sometimes it is very brief. It it, it is very momentary. Um, there are stories behind all of those, of course, uh, and it really depends. So in the story of Jane, she's been uh, receiving case management for the past year and a half. We have a team that works with her, um, and we have uh, some folks who have not been with us as long, or they kind of uh, will drop off the radar at some point. Like I was saying earlier, it is a very two-way street. You know, we try to make sure we're maintaining connections, uh, and the length of time really varies. We are about to launch, and I don't know all the details, so I don't want to speak too much about it quite yet. Um, but we, with the return to our uh, new building, we are starting a new program. Um, it's a, a cohort. Um, and so folks who are coming to receive services that would benefit from long-term therapy, um, benefit from uh, some job opportunities that they might not otherwise be able to have, um, we are working on having the bulk of our case management services, so our, our individual group therapies, uh, our rent and utilities assistance, our ID restoration, and kind of funnel down people who might need more intensive services uh, so that that span of time that they're working with us is longer but they're also getting some additional benefits. They, uh, we, we will have community partners um, who will hire our clients uh, and pay them a living wage um, as they are working to, to change their life. And so that co- cohort is going to be a multi-year program, and that's going to be very uh, intentional. Uh, and we are still in the uh, planning and dreaming stages of that. Um, as we are getting ready to transition, but we are basing it on um, a lot of uh, a lot of historical success from other organizations who have done this kind of work. Uh, and so it really, I wish I had a more exact answer for you, but it really varies depending on how people get connected um, and, and what their needs are. Um, one of our, uh, our program directors shared a story. We had a, a group of students from uh, Pembroke uh, that volunteered this past week, and uh, he shared a story with them of uh, people's needs change over time. Um, he said, uh, there was at one point, and I was not aware of this until he was sharing the story. I was like, I, I didn't know this one, um, that someone pulled up in a very high-end Mercedes um, and came in and uh, was asking, hey, I need some help with help with rent this month. Um, some, things, some things in their life had changed and they had their car and that was it. And so life can change very quickly for people. And so sometimes they just need that quick touch to be able to have that, that meaningful impact. And sometimes, uh, sometimes they need deeper relationship and deeper connection. Uh, and so we stay connected as best we can. But again, it's kind of a two-way street. Some people will you know, eventually be like, I'm good and walk away. Um, we also have some folks who are now will come in and donate regularly because they receive services from us years ago. Um, and so, uh, that relationship can also change. It's not always just a, sometimes they're a client and sometimes they're, they're, they're a partner, uh, in the work that we're doing. So, uh, so the volunteer role, uh, at this point in time, uh, we have, uh, most of our volunteering is happening through Thelma's kitchen. Um, and so, uh, it's preparing lunches, it's working with our team of chefs, um, preparing meals, some of which are being, uh, donated out to, um, 
the uh, to the community. All of our clients who come to receive services will have access to a meal when they come to receive services. Uh, and then, as I said, you know, the uh, Thelma's Kitchen is also producing meals that are that are being sold that generate revenue for um, uh, for the work that we're doing, uh, which is a really cool different model. Is because most companies are used to. Uh, hey, would you be a sponsor or uh, donate to our organization? But really, this helps us extend the relationship with com uh, community organizations and businesses because they're getting the physical thing and also generating impact in their community. Uh, we are in the process of the next few months. We are going to be expanding volunteering to also include um, some case management support uh, and uh, helping work the front desk and greeting people as they're coming in uh, to our space. Um, because that is a little bit different work, we want to make sure we do that well. And so uh, we're currently in discussions about what launching that side of our volunteer program is going to look like, but that's uh, that's going to be coming up soon. Got a couple questions here coming from our, our viewers. One is, uh, are our services fee free, whatever cost there might be? And then the other is like, do you work with felons from uh, across the state line, across to Kansas? Mm. Yes, we do not. Um, I'll start go backwards on those ones. So we do not uh, limit based on zip code uh, who we provide services with. There are some organizations that do. You know, they have certain uh, grants or um, or government funds that limit their ability to do that. Um, right now, uh, our limitation with some of the rent and utilities assistance. Um, that, I, that I'm aware of, I don't under, I don't know all the mechanics of all of the um, dispersals we do. So really, the only major limitation for some of the rent and utilities assistance is that um, it has to be there has to be some documentation over how uh, COVID impacted their finances to why they need assistance, and that is not hard to find. Uh, especially, <laughs> it really, it is not hard at all for us to to find that information. Um, because everyone was affected by COVID in, in, in their own ways. And so, and some people more directly financially, you know, they were laid off. Um, they, um, their job doesn't exist anymore, or they, uh, had large medical debt due to, uh, uh, dif very difficult, uh, journey with, uh, COVID. <clears throat> and the, uh, last piece is, um, our services are free. We, we do not charge for any of our services. There's, there's no fee, no charge. Uh, anything like that. And so um, we have uh, therapists um, on our team who are providing free free therapy, which is an incredibly expensive thing. Um, but everything that we do is at no cost. Um, as far as job assistance, um, do you have any or maybe comment upon um, possibility of transportation issues as an ability to maintain a job? Yes. So Obviously, uh, public transit has come a long way in Kansas City, and it still has a long way to go. Um, and uh, I believe about 98 or 99% of our clients do not have a personal vehicle. Um, and so transportation is a major thing. And part of that cohort program that I was um, talking about a little bit earlier is us. Uh, part of it is that we are going to work with um, individuals to help them get a vehicle or have access, uh, better access to public transit. Um, whether that's microtransit or working with local uh, auto dealers to negotiate a rate for uh, a good car, working with mechanics uh, in the area to make sure things are uh, uh, operable and um, working well. Uh, and so, uh, as I've said, you know, that's, that, that is a, a major hurdle and one that we're working on with the cohort model um, to help make sure that we, we can meet that particular need. So we're still working out with some of the mechanics no pun intended with what that looks like, uh, but we are uh, we're hopeful that that will that will become a major impact for a lot of the community that we serve. 
I want to follow up a little bit on the, uh, the therapy that you're providing, the uh, what the mechanics were into that and, uh, and the investment that was made and the motivation behind that. Because my experience in the social service field right now is that there is this understanding of a mental health crisis. But that is one area where there is very – seems to be there's almost nothing out there to, to help with that. Sure. Um, so the part of why therapy is so important, particularly – uh, for the work that we do is we are working on generations of trauma and generations of poverty. Um, and there is a cycle. I mean, this, this is documented. You can see there, there is a, there is a uh, genetic change uh, as people undergo trauma. And so that is not a, here's your ID, have a great day kind of fix. This is a, this is a, a again, very relational, very, we very much work on identifying what people's needs are. And then also having that invitation to participate. So we've hosted a uh, women's group. We've hosted men's group. We've, uh, we partnered with Amethyst Place and had a therapy group there. Um, uh, my understanding, I, I joined after COVID, but my understanding was pre-COVID um, that, uh, th that the organization, organization was also going out to other agencies to help facilitate because that is such a, a finite resource in um, in our world right now. There is a there is a mental health crisis, but there's not you know not every group can have a therapist on staff, and so the fact that we do and being able to help um, host groups and that kind of thing, but um, working on some of those lifelong changes because we want to see uh, and and. Part of the impetus behind the the cohort model as well is is working on some of that generational poverty and generational tra trauma to help make sure that not only the people that we are working with are impacted by our work, but their families are impacted by their work and their friends can see the impact and hopefully that that can lead to more positive generational lasting change. And so, really, we want to be a um, uh, there's. Try not to make too much of a tangent of this, but there's the issue of mercy and justice. And mercy is you are fishing in the river and someone is drowning and floating down the river. And so you pull them out. That's mercy. And then you go back and you're fishing the next day and someone floats down the river again. And so you pull them out. Again, that's mercy. Justice is saying, why are people falling in the river and drowning and going upstream and figuring out how to fix whatever issue it is, whether it's a rickety bridge or what have you? And so we do the mercy side. We are doing that work that is helping people in the moment, but we also want to focus on the justice side. How do we make lasting impact for individuals, for families, and for our community? And that work is a lot more intense. It's not as clear cut. It's not as easy to do. Uh, it takes a it, it takes a lot of work and a, and therapy is one major piece of how we can do that work um, and making sure that people have the resources they need. And uh, when we talk about helping people live fully abundant lives, that means working on unpacking, um, unpacking that trauma as well. So you got into the question I had in the back of my mind, just barely saying impacting their families. So you told us about two individuals, but there wasn't any sense that they had um, an ongoing connection with an the primary family. So our, how does that break down in your population of sure. uh, folks? Um, so I don't have all the exact statistics as far as how that works. Um, I do know for um, uh, for Jane's story, uh, she did not, uh, because of her past, she did not currently have connection with family. However, she was, you know, we help uh, connect her with other resources where she can build a social network. And so uh, family looks a little different to her right now. 
uh, in Reggie's story, that accident he was in, um, he actually was in the car with uh, his brother, and I, I believe it was brother and grandchildren. Um, and he was, he was the one who got injured, uh, very badly. Uh, thankfully everyone else mostly got away with bumps and scrapes and all that, but he, um, because he had left the prison system and had been working on rebuilding his life, he, he was able to reconnect with his family in that way. So, um, and I don't know all the details about like his particular past, but, um, so there is how people are able to partner with us and, um, receive services through us. It doesn't always make an immediate family impact, um, but it can, uh, it can and has led to um, rekindled connections. Um, but that's that's a little bit of a harder statistic to track. So, I would I would say, again, without knowing exact numbers, I, it's it's pretty split. Uh, sometimes folks are on their own. Um, sometimes folks have have family in the area, or they have extended family elsewhere. We had one. Uh, client come in that um, I think it was his cell phone died or something like that. Um, but his uh, sister from Chicago like bust down the day before Thanksgiving uh, because she was afraid something had happened to him. And so um, you know we're it, it's kind of split and it's very much on a case by case basis. Um, and we have a lot of folks who are local and have been local for generations. And then we have some folks who are transplants who are trying to get, get a, a footing after, you know, perhaps they've exited the prison system or perhaps they've had a traumatic event in their past uh, and they're working on trying to uh, establish themselves. So it, it varies. All right. Well, thank you, Mike. Uh, thank you for being here today. We've been listening to uh, Mike Marcus, again, the Community Engagement Coordinator at Reconciliation Services in Delmas Kitchen. Thank you for tuning in to the All Souls Forum. Keep your radio dialed to 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio, for your Jazz Afternoon with KC, coming up immediately. Followed by The Boogie Bridge with Jason Vivoni. And then the Heartland Labor Forum at 6 p.m. In the meantime, have a great day.